وبعد فالتاريخ والأخبار فيه لنفس العاقل اعتبار وفيه للمستبصر استبصار كيف أتى القوم وكيف صاروا يجري على الحاضر حكم الغائب فيثبت الحق بسهم صائب وينظر الدنيا بعين العقل ويترك السلام and welcome to the third episode of the Islamic History X podcast I know it's been a while firstly we'd like to apologize for our prolonged absence It's been a hectic few weeks since the last episode dropped. Exams, life, work, family. These things have been piling up. And because of this, we've neglected you, our dear listeners. Not because we don't care for you or we've forgotten about you, but these things happen, you know. Anyways, never fear. We're back. More episodes, more content, more of the reasons that you love this podcast. And apparently... You guys love this podcast so much that to motivate us to drop episode three, people took uh, interesting approaches to make that happen. Among them, there were the kind words of encouragement that we said we always appreciate. Uh, a few bribes were offered, um, people offering to pay us to drop the episodes. That's not how this works, but if it were, I promise we'd have an episode every single day. And the occasional threat of physical violence which was numerous people texting me that they would break my legs, my arms, if this episode didn't drop. Now, I'm glad we have such a dedicated listenership, but really, mob-style violence, alhamdulillah, all in good fun. Uh, like we said, this is the kind of engagement that excites us, motivates us to continue producing this podcast, and we really do appreciate the love. We're back. We're sorry. Let's get back on track. So on this week's episode, we're going to jump into the history of Islam in East Africa. And in particular, we're going to focus on the coastal nation of Somalia. That's my ancestral homeland. And I do this because beyond having a serious scholarly interest in the history of Islam in the Somali peninsula, the Somalis blew up my phone on the daily demanding this episode. So this is for you guys. The hope is that this will be the first episode in a series we will pursue in later seasons. For example... We'll do an episode on Islamic Ethiopia, Islamic Eritrea, Islamic Ghana, the history of Islam in Mali, Senegambia, kind of like an Islamic History X Africa edition. And don't worry, we'll try to get to every country that we can, inshallah. Now, there's no truly efficient way to chronicle the history of Islam in this part of the world because that would require a podcast series entirely on its own. What we can do is look at major historical trends some of the notable figures who were active in this part of the world uh, and try to craft a larger narrative about the history of Islam in Somalia. And we're going to try to connect the dots to form a coherent set of ideas that hit on all major points of interest. In order to do that, we're going to have to get back to the basics. Here's a brief overview. We'll quickly cover a, a social history of Islam in Arabia, the relationship between Arabia and East Africa, And from there, we'll jump into Somalia and Somalia's history. We'll explore the etymology of the word, and that'll be an interesting kind of linguistic conversation. We'll look at what Arab Islamic sources can tell us about this part of the world. We'll look at major historical developments in the Horn over the last 12 centuries, and a few profiles of notable personalities and scholars who are active here. For reference, when we discuss East Africa at large, I'll generally use the term the Horn. When I'm talking about Somalia, I'll use the word Somalia, 
or the Somali Peninsula. There's a great deal of history that we can uncover about other parts of the Horn, but that's beyond our mandate for this episode. So we'll come back to that at a later time. Don't worry, I promise. The historical record tells us that there was a long and storied relationship between the peoples of the Arabian Peninsula and the peoples of Northeast Africa, be that the various kingdoms in the Horn of Africa, Egypt, or the numerous empires and city-states that peppered the Ethiopian highlands and the Swahili coast. And like I said, it would require a monumental project to chronicle that history. So what we're going to look at, and it's in the name, is the Islamic history of East Africa. What was the relationship between Islam and this part of the world? How did Islam come into this part of the world? And what, if any, legacy has it left since its emergence almost 14 centuries ago? I know it's a tall order, but I'm certain we can make some serious headway. So let's jump into it. When we consult the seerah, or the biographical literature that's been compiled on the life of the Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, we find that a major turning point in the history of Islam was the earliest migration, or the hijrah from Mecca to Ard al-Habasha, or the land of Abyssinia modern-day Ethiopia and parts of Eritrea. And this migration was the result of religious persecution in Mecca, right, faced by the Muslims, and this is the birthplace of Islam. To understand these migrations to Africa, and there are more than one, we have to understand the social, political, and religious climate of Arabia at the turn of the 7th century. Now, before the advent of Islam, the Arabs had been scattered tribes across what we now call the Arabian Peninsula, as far south as the coastline of Yemen and as far north as the deserts of the Levant. A common misconception that exists and really persists until this day is that the Arabs are a people of a unitary cultural heritage, when in fact that is not the case. There was a rich plurality of religious expression, dialectical differences, as well as adherence to different cultural norms, depending on where in the peninsula you were. Now, the turn of the seventh century in Arabia was a fractured, chaotic time for a number of reasons. Mainly, the seemingly never-ending conflict between two of the main powers in the East at the time, the Byzantines and the Sassanids. To contextualize, the Byzantines and the Sassanids represented two warring martial cultures that had been at conflict in this part of the world for the better part of 600 years. Roman culture, Persian culture. These two empires would fight back and forth in a never-ending tug-of-war for dominance, and along the way, they drafted to their sides various nomadic or pastoral peoples who inhabited the northwestern and northeastern Arabian Peninsula, creating a buffer zone of sorts between these two empires. Think of garrisons, military outposts, ruled over semi-autonomously by these scattered tribes. The two most notable were the Arab tribes of Ben Ghassan and Ben Lakhm, called the Ghassanids and the Lakhmids, respectively in the kind of the Western sources. The Ghassanids were Melkite Christians in what is modern day Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and Palestine. The Lechmids were either Nestorian Christians or Arab pagans who sometimes dabbled in the sometimes religion of their masters, Manichaeism. It was a complicated relationship. 
Now, if we leave the northern frontiers, the lands of Ghassan al we will encounter the kings of Kinda in Central Arabia. This is the tribe which produced perhaps the most prolific pre-Islamic poet, Imr al-Qais. And if I can wax poetic here for a bit, change things up, you guys know I love poetry. The opening lines of Imr al-Qais's famous qasida or poem are legendary. Stop, my friends. Let us stay and weep at the thought of my love. She lived here on the desert's edge between the Khul and Haumal. This is the longing call of a lover for a woman he can never love. I think what the kids call that these days is uh, down bad. Beyond the innocence of this opening line, this is a fairly lewd and uh, revelrous poem. Bear in mind, when I memorized this poem, I had to recite it to uh, fairly conservative teachers. Um, but it's a masterpiece of the Arabic language, really, that will likely not be forgotten anytime soon. Uh, so famous was this poem that it was among the Mu'allaqat al-Sab'a, poems that were hung on the banner of the Kaaba. This, again, is an alleged occurrence, but it's believable. Even further south were the kings of Himyar, an ancient kingdom. They had been the masters of Yemen and the Red Sea trade for nearly two millennia before they were displaced by the kings of Aksum and later on the Sassanids. Keep Aksum in mind, they're going to play a major role in this episode. It's important to note that not everyone was a vassal or even an independent king. There were smaller city-states and tribal confederations that were dominant over a certain area or a city. Uh, the most prominent examples being Ben Thaqif at their capital of Taif. The small Jewish Arab tribes of Ben Qurayza and Ben Qaynuqa are of note, particularly because of their unique Judaic heritage. And perhaps most importantly was Ben Quraysh, who controlled the most important city in the whole of the Arabian Peninsula, Mecca. Quraysh was also the tribal confederation that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was born into. And this will become important later on as well. He was born into the noble sub-clan of Banu Hashim, who were the stewards and the custodians of the Kaaba. What is the Kaaba, you may ask? The Qur'an establishes that it was the patriarch Ibrahim, known in the biblical literature as Abraham, and his son Ismail, known as Ishmael, who built the Kaaba. And it was Ismail who would later go on to become the progenitor of various Arab clans who would come to be known as Adnani Arabs named after a descendant of Ismail named Adnan. The distinction is important because classical Arab genealogists categorized the Arabs of the Greater Peninsula into three distinct categories. Number one, Al-Arab al-Ba'idah, the ancient Arabs or the extinct Arabs. These were the oldest of the Arabs. There's a particular mythic proportion to them, but the Quran does attest to at least two that we know, Ad and Thamud who were destroyed for their transgressions against God. The pure Arabs, or Al-Arab Al-Ariba, who immigrated out of Yemen and were descendants of Ya'rub Al-Qahtani. They later came to be known as the Qahtani Arabs. And lastly, the aforementioned Adnani Arabs, also called Al-Arab Al-Musta'riba, or Arabized Arabs, who were the progeny of Ismail. I know what you're thinking. Ismail wasn't an Arab, 
and neither was his father the patriarch Abraham. So how could his descendants be Arabs? Remember the Quranic story where God commands Abraham to leave his wife Hajar and his young son Ismail in the valley of Mecca. They later on go to find the well of Zamzam. Ibrahim returns. Ismail marries a woman from the tribe of Jurhum and his descendants go on to become the Arabs that populate this part of Arabia. Now, the genealogists disagree if Jurhum, the tribe that Ismail marries into, were ancient Arabs or were Qahtani Arabs, Arabs from Yemen. Our friend from the last episode, Ibn Khaldun, is of the opinion they were Qahtanites. In any case, these people become the Adnani Arabs, whom the Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, is a descendant of. It was these Adnanites who settled Mecca and would serve as the stewards and the custodians of God's own house. The Islamic tradition holds that they abandoned the monotheism of the patriarchs Ibrahim and Ismail within a few generations and they returned to the worship of idols. Mecca, that had once been the home of the monotheism practiced by the patriarch Abraham and Ismail, was now desecrated by the worship of false deities. It should be noted, however, that these Arabs believed in the supreme deity of Islam, Allah. But they worshipped many intermediaries whom they saw as subordinate to the supreme being Allah, among them Allat, Al-Uzza, and Hubal. According to the Egyptian jurist Sheikh Umar Abdul Kafi, each tribe had a particular totem or god that was kind of their, their figurehead for their clan, so to speak. Uh, some examples are Allat, a deity mentioned uh, in the Quran, worshipped by Thaqif, the tribe of Ta'if. Manat was the primary deity of the people of Qazraj, um, who settled in Yathrib, which would later become Medina. And Hubal was the primary deity of the clan of Quraysh. Um, in particular, Ben Abdi Shams and Ben Umayyah. Over time, Mecca, which had gone from this monotheistic center in the heartland of Arabia, would become a center of major pilgrimage for the now pagan Arab tribes. During this annual festival, the tribes of Arabia would bring their tribal totems and their deities for a great festival. It was here that the ever-warring Arab tribes reconciled, established blood ties, signed treaties, recited poetry, and generally set the code of conduct for the coming year. At this point, Mecca exploded into a major mercantile and religious center, where goods were traded and exported to places as far as Constantinople and Luyang in China. It was in this climate that the Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, received his revelation in the year 610. This would radically alter the course of human history. His call was to practice a purely monotheistic religion that did away with the numerous intermediaries or minor deities that his people worshipped, and he called them to the worship of the one true creator, Allah. Now, this did not go over very well, because you have to remember, there was a massive economic and political advantage to being the custodians of the major religious center of that time. And you have to remember, the Prophet Muhammad was born into a noble clan, right, Ben Hashim, and they were the stewards of the Kaaba. So immediately his declaration that the gods of his people are illegitimate puts him at odds with his immediate family, his next of kin. But because he's an honorable man, a prodigal son, so to speak, 
they hesitate to really abuse him or to hurt him publicly. But what they do actually is they persecute and abuse the people that flocked to Islam in those early days. And at this time, Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, is promoting and preaching Islam in secret for those first two years. Uh, he's preaching to his next of kin, his wife Khadija, his cousin Ali, his confidant and best friend Abu Bakr al-Siddiq. And over time, the people that are drawn to Islam are coming from the downtrodden class in Mecca. Slaves, the tribally unaffiliated, people who are uh, foreigners and kind of new to Mecca. They find the egalitarian streak of Islam very appealing, right? This unequivocal unity and equalness before God is radically uh, a pragmatic new idea in a place where who you're related to or what tribe you hail from is everything and what amount of wealth you have and what access that gives you to a quality of life. So it's no surprise that the earliest Muslims are coming from this lower socioeconomic strata. And unlike Muhammad, they don't have the political, social, or, or kind of tribal clout that safeguards them from abuse, persecution, and even murder. And so what happens is they become the targets of the leadership of Quraysh. And eventually, this causes the Prophet to declare that the Muslims are going to migrate to Abyssinia, to a land across the Red Sea where a just king presides over a just kingdom. Enter the Muslims into Abyssinia. ولا تجزع لحادثة الليالي فما لحوادث الدنيا بقاء So the situation in Mecca has become untenable, right? Like we mentioned, between the emergence of the prophethood of Muhammad, peace be upon him, and the eventual flight to Abyssinia, there's a five-year period. And those first three years are dedicated to secret preaching, building the network of early Muslims. And those next two years, between 613 and 615, are years of absolute abuse and prejudice against this newly emerging Muslim community. And so the Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, kicks off this project by commanding the Muslims who are able to, to travel to Abyssinia. And this is a hadith recorded in the Sunan of Al-Bayhaqi, إِنَّ بِالْحَبَشَةِ مَلِكًا لَا يُظْلَمُ عِنْدَهُ أَحَدٍ Verily, in the land of Abyssinia, there is a king whom, under whose protection no one is harmed or abused. And we know from the later historical record, this is the Negus or the Negus of Abyssinia, Ashama ibn Abjar, who is a king of Aksum, right? And Aksum at this time is in their, kind of their decline period, but still it's a powerhouse overall in East Africa, one of the main powerhouse kingdoms. In any case, the Muslims leave Mecca and they're under this time the leadership of Uthman ibn Affan, who later on goes to have two very distinct characteristics, accomplishments, achievements. He makes the hijrah not only to Abyssinia, but also later to Medina. And he's also married to two of the Prophet's daughters, um, Ruqiyya and Umm Karthum. And this is why he earns the name the Nurain, or the one of two lights, right? Because he is the son-in-law of the Prophet. In any case, the Muslims leave Mecca. They travel to a port called Shuaiba. They land likely um, on a port on the eastern seaboard called Adulis. And then later on, they get to Aksum, which is the capital, the seat of the kingdom of Aksum. 
Now, Abyssinia at this time, like we mentioned, is going through this period of decline because if we recall from the historical record, Abyssinia in the uh, 3rd and 4th century was dominant, right? They had quickly absorbed the kingdoms of Kush. Um, they had leveled their capital at Meroe. In the 5th century, for a period of time, they conquered the kingdom of Hemir in southern Yemen and established kind of a proxy kingdom there. It didn't last long because the Sassanids later on regained control of that part of the world. But this was still a, a dominant and powerful empire. And so when the Muslims get here, they are immediately, they feel safe, they feel welcome. They're, 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 they're very much at home. They come from a land of persecution and abuse into a land of religious freedom, more or less. And they're not abused and they're not questioned. And Ashama even welcomes them with open arms, the, the Najashi, the Negus of uh, Aksum. And at this time, Aksum is a, a purely Christian land, right? Um, particularly under the Ethiopian Orthodox Rite, which is very closely related to the Coptic Rite. Um, and for some time, even the Bishop of Alexandria appointed the bishops of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Now, that first migration was, uh, according to Ibn Ishaq, about 11 or 12 men and four women. They left that year. They sought refuge, and then what happened was they heard reports that the Muslims had prevailed in Mecca, i.e. the people of Mecca had left their polytheistic paganism and converted to Islam. Unfortunately, a lot of them left Abyssinia, and this ended up not being true. And um, many of them had to sneak back into Mecca or seek refuge with relatives and, and kin who were powerful and could protect them. But at this point, Quraysh is starting to feel the pressure, the heat, this is going from a small movement into kind of a full-on uh, religious revolution, so to speak. And it becomes that way because the same year, that first group was composed of maybe 16 or 17 individuals. That second year, in 616, a group of about 80 people leave from Mecca and head to Abyssinia. And at this time, at the head of this delegation is the cousin of the Prophet, Ja'far ibn Abi Talib who is uh, well known for being a kind, intelligent, and shrewd man. Now, 12 people is a small, small contingent, right? But 80 people leaving your city and adhering to a newfound faith and leaving as migrants to a new land, that's a problem. That's going to cause some, you know, some eyebrows to get raised uh, all over Arabia. Because Mecca, remember, is the center of the Arab pagan tradition. So you can't have, it's like imagine New York City, the stock exchange just crumbles overnight and people say, we're going to move to, I don't know, Binghampton and that's going to be the new home of the stock exchange. It's just not going to fly, right? And so Quraysh sends their number one most shrewd, intelligent, smooth operator whose name is Amr ibn al-As. And he's recorded among the Arabs as being one of the Dhuhat al-Arab the four intelligent or shrewd men of the Arabs. This is a, you know, a really high caliber list. On this list is Muawiyah, Al-Mughira ibn Shu'bah, Ziyad ibn Abihi, and then finally the shrewdest of them all, Amr. Amr makes his way to Abyssinia, and before he goes, Quraysh meets at what they call Dar al-Nadwa, which is their meeting house. And they load him up with gifts, with money, so as to make this transition very smooth. And I won't take long on this story because it's a well-known story. 
But basically, Amr gets to the court of Najashi, presents his gifts, lathers him with praise, and Najashi basically says, what do you want? Amr then says, we're here to collect these wayward youth who have accepted a religion that their forefathers never knew, and we're, we're hoping to bring them back to Mecca, where we can rehabilitate them, you know, bring them back to society. Najashi says, I am not in the habit of returning people who are seeking refuge. What's the case that you have to make? Amr being shrewd gets deep into his bag and says, hmm, how can I cause dissension between Najashi, this Christian king, and a very devout Christian king at that, and this nascent Muslim community? Well, Amr says, Najashi, great king, you should know that these Muslims do not believe in the divinity of Jesus, right, as the Messiah. Najashi says, Muslims, what do you have to say about this? And Jafar, being the eloquent and calm and collected person that he is, says, this is true. I'm not going to lie to you. We don't hold Jesus to be divine. He is the son of Mary, conceived miraculously. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. And he is a figure of incredible importance, but we don't ascribe any divinity to him. And he later on recites verses from Surah Al-Maryam, or the, the chapter of Mary from the Qur'an. And this moves Ashama. And he says, what you have said is exactly in line with our tradition. And Ashama, according to the Muslim sources, accepts Islam. And Ashama, the Najashi, accepts Islam. And this is a huge victory for the Muslims. Amr, who is this shrewd, smooth operator, has to go back to Mecca empty-handed, and the Muslims are safe. So much so that they stay in Abyssinia for the next 14 years, many of them, right? Until the second migration in 629 to Medina. At this point, Islam is taking root in East Africa, right? We're seeing the emergence of kind of a Muslim culture. And the question that emerges, right, when we pivot here, how did Islam enter East Africa if the Muslims of Arabia eventually returned to Mecca and later on to Medina? And this is a question that uh, really pertains to our subject at hand. It's been 20 minutes. I know we haven't gotten to Somalia, but the buildup is necessary, right? How does Islam enter East Africa at large and Somalia in particular? Now, there are four essential theories that I think historians have really tried to narrow this down to. So number one, during the Hijrah to Abyssinia, some Muslims ended up staying in Abyssinia or they interacted with the locals in Abyssinia who then helped spread Islam uh, eastward, right, or southward. Um, this is considered to be kind of one of the weaker options because it doesn't, we don't have material evidence per se for a long, a deeply established or deeply rooted Muslim community as part of East Africa. We know that the early Muslims were migrants, they were transients, they were in, stayed there for safety. When things were good, they went back to Arabia. The second theory is that during the time of the third uh, Khalif Uthman, Muslims from Yemen began to kind of suss out where they could put some roots down permanently in East Africa. And remember, there was a long history of trade between Yemen and Aksum, right, this Ethiopian Christian kingdom. And uh, Zayla is a city that, that people often point to, a city in the northern part of Somalia, in current-day Somaliland, the autonomous region. Um, but we'll come back to that. The third theory is that during the first half of the first century Hijrah, a trade network was established and developed really between Muslim Arabia 
and kind of the Christian kingdoms of Aksum, and many Muslims began to settle permanently. And we're, we're seeing perhaps the emergence of semi-permanent encampments, perhaps sedentary lifestyles among newly converted Arabs from Yemen and Oman. And lastly, during the reign of Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, there was a rebellion in this part of the world. The Umayyad sent an army. This army was sent to quash a rebellion in Egypt, and then eventually they moved southward. Now, of these four scholarly opinions, I'm inclined to believe the third one is the most rational because we do know that in East Africa and in other parts of Africa, these trade networks were incredibly important. Now, the claim that's made by the Somalis and by other East African groups, uh, namely the Eritreans, is that there are two mosques in East Africa that have qiblas or prayer niches that point towards Jerusalem. Why is that relevant, right? Why is that relevant? Because we know that the Muslims, their first qibla, their first prayer direction was towards Jerusalem, right? And this was the, the qibla for the Muslims for many years until the verse came down that changed the qibla to Mecca after the conquest of Mecca. So if there's a mosque that is facing towards Jerusalem, there must have been a Muslim presence in that area before the conquest of Mecca and before the eventual migration to Medina, which predates, which really is material evidence that there was at least a, if not permanent, a temporary Muslim presence in this area, uh, and permanent enough that they built a mosque and they prayed in it regularly. And this has been kept for posterity. That mosque, Al-Qiblatayn, is still present today in East Africa, in Zayla. And there are other mosques, one in Eritrea and one in uh, the Swahili coast, which have two mihrabs. And so this is material evidence that establishes there was a nascent and present Muslim community in East Africa. Now, we know that later on, Zayla is going to become a major center of Muslim learning, but we can tentatively establish material and kind of evidentiary roots of Muslim presence in this part of the world as early as the beginning of the 7th century. So that's a lot of history right there. Now, when material evidence conflicts with accepted narratives, I'm a little bit of a materialist. I'm going to go with what I can visibly see, touch, and look at, right? And the mihrab and the qibla is really strong evidence for the presence of a Muslim community. Whether that community was sedentary or was... Uh, kind of uh, in transit is at this point immaterial because we know Zaylat becomes a center of learning, perhaps even in that same century. One of the great challenges that emerges when studying Somali Islamic history is the inability to synthesize a structured and holistic timeline of the city-states and Somali dynasties that were active between 900 and 1400. The problem is that the Arabic source material and the dynastic records that we have are often in outright contradiction and contain mythical figures, uh, wandering strangers who found dynasties and are never heard from again. Uh, and it's just kind of like this mess of sources, really. Not to mention the Somalis not having a standardized or widely adopted writing system until the mid-20th century. So we're kind of in the dark here a little bit, but never fear. I've done a lot of the legwork for you in terms of creating a no-nonsense timeline to make sense of early Somali history. So, let's get into it.
And for the sake of time, this will be a condensed version and we'll have more time to jump into kind of the larger events on the next episode. We start at Zayla with Masjid al-Qiblatayn, likely completed between the years 615 and 624, making it one of the oldest mosques in East Africa. Like I said, I'm convinced by the material evidence, and that's just the way that it goes. The next hundred years or so are murky. Like I said, there is all of those alleged Arab waves of migration that are supported by very limited historical data. These early Arab migrations to the coasts all come by virtue of a book called Kitab al-Zunuj, a compilation of manuscripts and oral reports by a hence unknown author who claims and alleges that, one, there was that group from Oman fleeing Umayyad prosecution, the brothers Sa'id and Salman ibn Abad, that settled on the Zanj coast, and Zanj is in quotation marks here. In those days, that could have meant anywhere from Sofala in Mozambique to Zayla. So it's not really uh, concrete or something you can pin down per se. And that's in the year 695. In the same year, the Umayyad Caliph, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, is alleged to have sent the Emir, Musa ibn Amr al-Qathami, to spread Islam and to secure taxation and tribute for the Umayyads from a group of alleged Muslims who may have been living in Mogadishu. According to the Umayyad records, al-Qathami was able to pacify Muslims all the way from Mogadishu to Kilwa in modern-day Kenya, and he was able to extract taxation and uh, give, get alms from them, more or less. In the year 739, we have an interesting episode of perhaps a proto-Shi'i Somali history. The Shi'is at this time, right, still kind of a nebulous proto-political movement, ascribed themselves to Zayd ibn Ali, the grandson of Hussein ibn Ali. He revolted against the Umayyad Khalif, Hisham ibn Abdul Malik, Hisham being the intelligent and shrewd tactician that he was, bribed the people of Kufa to betray Zayd ibn Ali. Now, you'll notice that the descendants of Ali ibn Abi Talib being betrayed at Kufa is a reoccurring theme here. His supporters fled, and Zayd ibn Ali was captured and put to death. And allegedly, they fled first to Yemen, then to the Somali coast, and then into the interior. Now, there is some evidence for this because in 1329, when Ibn Battuta visits Zayla, he comes across a group of people that he says have a serious zeal for Ali and Fatima. And this is interpreted to be uh, his way of saying that there were perhaps Shi'i in their beliefs. And we do have records of other Shi'i groups active in Zayla around the same time. The 9th through 12th centuries are dominated by the emergence of Persian and Arab seafaring peoples called the Shirazis, who would visit, settle, and trade with the established communities of Mogadishu, Barawa, and Murka. Testaments to their time there are the Fakhreddin Mosque, likely completed in the last days of the 10th century, and it really is a testament to Somali Persian culture and architecture. It's interesting to note that a potential theory for the name Mogadishu is a possible cognate from the Persian Maq'adi Shah, right? This phrase that means seat of the Shah, and Shah meaning uh, king in the uh, kind of the Persian language. But 
that theory is a little bit outshone by the fact that many scholars believe that Mogadishu existed prior to the emergence or the coming of these Persian-speaking peoples. Now, we're going to be here all day if we try to crack this timeline. So what we're going to do, inshallah, is bring this episode to a close. And on the next episode, we will explore the coastal Somali city-states and their multi-ethnic and multicultural history. We're going to talk about Barawa, Zayla, Amurka, Mogadishu. And I promise you, we will talk about Ifat, Adal, and the Ajuran and their centuries-long conflict with the Solomon dynasties of Ethiopia. But before we go, I want to quickly draw our attention to a prolific Somali woman who was a scholar of Hadith. And I want to give a shout-out to Ustad Muhammad Abdullah Artan, director of Loh Press, for putting me on the game. He always has the best gems. He drew my attention to a scholar named Khadija bint Faraj Zayl'iya. She was an eminent Hadith scholar in the 15th century, and she taught luminaries like Jalalatina Suyuti and Imam Sakhawi. She was known for her piety, her wara, and her love of the Quran. She herself received an ijazah from another prolific woman scholar, Aisha bint Abdul Hadi, who was a part of the larger bin Abdul Hadi, an elite family of scholars from Damascus. When I read her biography, I really remembered something. Oftentimes, it's not that the women aren't there. It's that perhaps we're not looking hard enough. And shout out to Sheikh Muhammad for finding this because he uncovered three more Somali women scholars who were scholars of Hadith, of Tafsir, and were the reason that some of the greatest names that we know today, Sakhawi and Suyuti, were able to complete their own journeys of knowledge. So let's give credit where credit's due. All in all, inshallah, this next episode is going to be jam-packed. It's going to be really information-heavy. I know this is one of our longer episodes, but the feedback we've been getting has been to extend the episodes, right? Because, you know, there's a lot people want to learn and there's a lot that we want to share. Thank you as always for tuning into the podcast. Thank you for the support. Like always, please leave a review if you appreciated the episode. We're thinking, um, people have been reaching out, asking if they can sponsor an episode, if they can, uh, you know, uh, shout out their brand. And inshallah, if that's something you're interested in, let us know. We're not opposed to it. We're still pretty early in the process, but we'll definitely take it under consideration. If you appreciated today's episode, please leave a like and a review on the Apple Podcast Store or shout us out on Twitter and Instagram. We'll see you next week. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Thank you.